How does it express itself in a post-colonial world? Such questions have interested me for many years, but I do not pretend to have exhausted them. I have tried to write tentatively and suggestively, respecting the paradoxes that spring to the eye once one begins to consider the evidence of history. Specialists may well have reservations when I venture upon their specialties, but universal themes need to be treated broadly. I'm sure there is something useful in setting out general arguments about important features of our world, especially when they are features we badly need to understand. In recent years, that world has had a surfeit of interpretation. It has been said, for instance, that history has come to an end. That was always implausible. It has also been said that the world now faces new alarms and excursions caused by the clashes of civilizations. At first sight, that looks more credible, yet neither view appeals to me as the last word about the moment at which we stand. In any case, this book does not seek to look forward, but takes a historical approach. Whenever I look at the past, I find it cluttering our footsteps at every turn, sometimes with a painful impact. History seems often like the proverbial garden rake, a valuable aid, but if one lays it aside carelessly and forgets it, Sooner or later one will tread on the wrong end of it and get a black eye. The last few years surely show that, although I have not been able to take them into account in this reprint. What follows is my text as it first appeared in 1985. I hope my readers will not forget that what they read now was written while the Cold War was still in full swing, the Soviet Union still intact, and Saddam Hussein still thought of by the State Department as a man worth cultivating. Perhaps I would not have written quite the same way if I'd been writing twelve years later, but my conclusions would have been the same. In the original edition, I listed the obligations I owe to numerous friends and colleagues who helped me both with the films and the text, and to my family, and thanked them. That record can be found easily enough. I shall not repeat it here, but nor do I wish to alter it in any respect. J. M. Roberts, December the 1st, 1997 Introduction Whatever ills and uncertainties faced individuals, it seems to have been much easier to feel optimistic about society as a whole in 1900 than it is today. Whatever qualifications they made, thinking men and women in what was called the civilized world could feel in those days that things were all the time getting better and that the skills and power which went with civilization would make sure that progress continued. Problems were being solved very quickly. Those which remained looked as if they too would give way to human ingenuity, perhaps before very long. Only a highly educated few felt pessimistic as they looked at the century ahead. That confidence went with a sense of belonging to a particular civilization, that commonly called European, Western, or the civilization of the West. Its sheer energy and power excited people. Sometimes it seemed almost as if Western civilization's main characteristic was its power to create change. But its technical ingeniousness and wealth seemed to express some deeper superiority too. Everyone knew there'd been other great civilizations in the ancient past. Some of them had survived into modern times. But 19th century China, say, was usually thought of as hardly more alive than was ancient Assyria, by those who belonged to the civilized world. 
That notion stood in an implicit contrast to everything else, the uncivilized rest of the world, which above all did not share its dynamism. Western civilization had come to birth and matured in Europe before spreading across the seas to other continents settled by Europeans. By 1900, North and South America, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa were its overseas centers and strongholds. Not all of those continents and countries reached the same levels of civilized achievement in all sides of their life, but that was true in Europe too. It was freely admitted that in some parts of Europe, Russia, for instance, or parts of the Balkans, the process of civilization had not gone as far as it ought to have done, and that you could reasonably argue about whether they ought to be regarded as civilized or not. Nor was Western civilization outside Europe confined to lands settled by Europeans, for the men of the West had been for a long time civilizing the whole world in their image, by means other than migration. As their ideas and institutions spread round the globe, some of them were prepared to concede that there were Westernized Indians, Chinese, Africans, who could be counted as civilized men. In the last two or three decades of the 19th century, indeed, one wholly non-Western country, Japan, appeared to be joining the civilized world, accepting its standards, ideas, and many of its ways. Nevertheless, around 1900, most thinking people would have broadly agreed that it was only in a Western world, however you might precisely define it, that true civilization was to be found. Over 80 years later, many now find it hard to feel so sure. Far less can they take it for granted that Western civilization will go on being the main source of mankind's future progress and well-being. Some even think it may have shot its boat. The reasons for such misgivings are patent. We have put men on the moon, but cannot find a way to give all our fellow humans enough to eat. Far less a chance of running their own lives, such as many of us take for granted. Huge numbers of people seem to have no share in the wealth created by science and technology, though the mirage of it is more and more tantalizingly dangled before them. Our ability to improve the lot of the poorest sometimes seems actually to be decreasing as time goes by, yet their numbers grow and grow. Within the old European heart of the Western world, too, this century has turned out to be more, much more, violent. Than the last, men have killed one another on a horrific scale in huge world wars. Though mercifully the great powers have not fought one another for nearly forty years, there has been fighting, much of it wasteful and pointless, going on somewhere almost every day since 1945. Age-old hatreds and bitterness have not been exorcised; new ones have appeared. Political passion, religious bigotry, fear, ambition, and envy are as destructive as ever. New creeds only gave them fresh scope. Such forces have often caused war in past centuries and now seem more dangerous than ever. It is conceivable that if international politics are mismanaged as they have often been mismanaged in the past, nuclear and biochemical weapons may obliterate whole peoples and much of civilization itself. Intellectuals in Western countries seem to feel such misgivings with special intensity. Even their old faith in the technological dynamic is questioned. 
Material progress has never been so swift, but has brought its own costs, damaging the environment and setting new problems. Not even material betterment, it turns out, is for free. It may be that this is just because the scale has become so much bigger, but technical prowess no longer seems to point so obviously and unambiguously as once it did to a cheery future. Moral and political difficulties do not go away because we have better electronics or medicine. They only look more menacing as a result. Even the Russians, who, officially at least, cling to a clear, uncomplicated faith in progress, long after it has crumbled elsewhere, now seem to falter. Citizens of the great North American Republic, in a more optimistic age, the world's last best hope, now dabble with Oriental religion, mysticism, and the fads of those who reject individualism. Both Soviet Russia and the United States of America are burdened by environmental problems, alcoholism, dissatisfied minorities, and economically crushing armaments. Both evidently doubt their power to dominate events and grapple with the frustrating inability to impose a secured order on their international environment. The troubling of the Western psyche has been going on for decades. The rolling back of European empire and the loss of a monopoly of technological and economic power by old states is one source of dismay. It was easier for Western governments to feel abreast of the game when they needed only to take their own wishes into account in running the world. Yet this is only a very small and very recent part of the story. More damage may well have been done to the self-confidence of the West by its horrified recognition of what it released from the...